bringing you the latest in tax credit news, this is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratik. Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. Today is Tuesday, November 26, 2019. I do hope that you and your loved ones have a wonderful Thanksgiving. Now, we're nearing the end of the calendar year, which means it's the season for extenders. In fact, 28 years ago this week, the Tax Extension Act was introduced in the House. That bill extended the low-income housing tax credit through June 30th, 1992, and the bill was signed into law by President George H.W. Bush on December 11th. That legislation was actually the last short-term extension of the low-income housing tax credit. After that, the incentive actually expired for about a year before President Bill Clinton signed legislation into law that extended the low-income housing tax credit retroactively and made the incentive an indefinite part of the tax code. Now, I will have updates for you in today's podcast on current efforts to enact tax extender legislation before the end of this calendar year. Turning now to today's podcast, I have updates in a wide variety of topics. Obviously, tax extenders, as I just mentioned, as well as a messaging bill to repeal Opportunity Zones, affordable housing plans by Democratic presidential candidates, affordable housing legislation, income limits, as well as operating cost adjustment factors. And I'll close out with a roundup of news on regulatory reform, more on Opportunity Zones, public housing, as well as a state allocating agency update. If you're ready, let's get started. Now, as you've heard, or at least you've noticed, the federal government did not shut down last week. The federal government funding deadline was, in fact, extended until Friday, December 20th, which means lawmakers have now reset the clock and have about three and a half weeks from today to negotiate spending levels and details for 12 annual bills. And the funding of the border wall is definitely going to be an issue that we have to see how it's going to get resolved to see if we avoid a government shutdown. But what does this mean for year-end tax legislation? Well, it means you can expect to see Republicans and Democrats trying to get their tax priorities included in a year-end legislative vehicle that has a tax title. Now, House Ways and Means ranking member Kevin Brady of Texas did tell reporters last Thursday that he was hopeful that both sides of the aisle, Republicans and Democrats, could compromise on tax legislation. This, according to tax notes. Now, ranking member Brady did say that the focus of the discussions should remain on tax extenders and technical corrections to the 2017 tax reform law. Now, not too surprisingly, this is a more narrow and slightly different focus or emphasis than House Democrats on the Ways and Means Committee are seeking. By way of example, a group of 26 House Democrats sent a letter to House Speaker Nancy Pelosi last week urging her to include in year legislation the elimination or removal of the phase down or phase out of a number of energy tax credits. The continuation of the investment tax credit at current rates was also at the heart of a discussion draft released by House Ways and Means Democrats last week. The discussion draft entitled the Growing Renewable Energy and Efficiency Now Act is of course, called the Green Act. The Green Act would extend the production tax credit at its current 60% rate through 2024, then resume a phase-down. It would delay the phase-down of the investment tax credit for solar to 2025 instead of 2020. 
would expand the investment tax credit to include energy storage technology, think batteries, would create energy credits for manufacturers, as well as reinstate and extend the Section 25 Cap D, Section 179 Cap D, and the Section 45 Cap L, energy efficiency deductions and credits through the year 2024. Now again, the Green Act is a discussion draft at this point. But House Ways and Means Committee Chairman Richard Neal earlier this month did say that some of the Green Act's provisions could be on the table for year-end tax extenders negotiations. In Opportunity Zones news, Democratic Representative Rashida Tlaib of Michigan introduced legislation last Friday to repeal the Opportunity Zones incentive. The bill, the Repeal Opportunity Zones Act of 2019, or H.R. 5252, would, as the name implies, repeal the Opportunity Zones incentive. It would be repeal or be effective on the day after the bill is enacted and would require any gain that would otherwise benefit from the incentive to be included in income. Now, this bill doesn't have any chance of passing anytime soon. Now, Chairwoman of the House Progressive Caucus, Pramila Jayapal, she's from Washington, is an original co-sponsor. We'll obviously keep an eye on the bill and we'll share any updates as they become available. Let's move on now to the topic of housing. The National Low Income Housing Coalition sent a sign-on letter earlier this month to moderators of the November 20th Democratic debate. This letter was signed by more than 1,000 organizations. Now, the letter urged moderators to ask the presidential candidates how they would address the nation's housing and homelessness crisis. Well, if you watch the debate, you know the effort paid off. At last Thursday's debate, candidates were asked for their affordable housing solutions. A candidate, Tom Steyer, said he would push for policy changes as well as allocating more federal resources towards building millions of new units. And Senator Elizabeth Warren, she jumped in and spoke about her plan for 3.2 million new housing units. And Senator Cory Booker, well, he spoke about his proposed refundable tax credit for renters who pay more than a third of their income in rent. Now in October, you may have read, I wrote a Washington Wire column for the Novogratz Journal of Tax Credits. In the column, I outlined housing plans by Democratic presidential candidates, that is, those that had released proposals. Now in the coming weeks, I'm going to update that summary with proposals that presidential candidates have released since the publication of my initial Washington Wire. I will announce those updates in a future podcast. Now in some other housing news, seven House Democrats, led by Yvette Clark of New York, introduced a bill earlier this month that would bar jurisdictions from using a high housing cost adjustment to calculate area median income. That is, unless the jurisdiction gets HUD-specific approval. Now, a high housing cost adjustment essentially allows property owners in high housing cost areas to charge assisted households more rent than they would otherwise be able to charge because they're in high housing cost areas. Now, you typically see this adjustment in areas where rents are significantly high compared to area median income. Places like New York City, San Francisco, and Miami. Now, for areas that had or would have had a high housing cost adjustment, this bill would also authorize an additional $2.5 billion annually each for the Home Investment Partnership Program, 
for the Community Development Block Grant Program and the Housing Trust Fund from, for fiscal years 2020 through 2029. Now, another provision of the bill would require the head secretary to assess alternative methods and metrics for calculating area median income for HUD programs. Now, there are other provisions of the bill, and some of those other provisions include imposing annual reporting requirements for low-income housing tax credit properties. The proposed annual reporting requirements would include all post-allocation expenditures that substantially affect the basis of the building, five-year rent projections, profits, tax credit syndication expenditures, and any other information required by HUD that's necessary, reasonably necessary, to determine program compliance. Now, I should note that certain terms in the bill, like the threshold for expenditures that, quote, substantially affect a building's basis, aren't defined in the text. As such, there are significant questions that remain unanswered about the bill's requirements. In a nutshell, that's what the bill proposes. Now, the bill is called the Affordable Housing and Area Median Income Fairness Act, and it does have eight co-sponsors, all of them Democrats, and seven of the eight co-sponsors come from New York, including House Democratic Caucus Chairman Representative Hakeem Jeffries. Jeffries is the number four official in House Democratic leadership. So let's stay on the topic of housing. Let's move from legislation that's not likely to be enacted anytime soon to income and rent limits for 2020 and 2021, something that is actionable in terms of your current planning. Novogratic has estimated income limits, which means rent limits as well, for the years 2020 and 2021. These estimates are based on the American Community Survey and the Congressional Budget Office's Consumer Price Index estimate. Now, as you probably know, particularly if you're a regular listener to this podcast, increases in income limits for the Long-Term Housing Tax Credit and Section 8 are capped at either 5% or double the change in U.S. median income, whichever is greater. Now, in this case, for both 2020 and 2021, the cap is going to be double the U.S. median income increase, which means the caps are going to be nearly 8%. That's the maximum increase in 2020 and nearly 7% in 2021. Now, my partner, Thomas Stagg, has written a blog post on the income limit estimates. In the blog post, he focuses on the number of areas that are going to have a dramatic increase as well as dramatic decreases in their limits in 2020 and 2021. These are very important for your planning operating budgets for existing and properties under development as well as properties under construction. Now, in both 2020 and 2021, 21, more than 30% of the areas, areas that we can estimate, are going to have increases of more than 5% of their rent and income limits. In fact, in 2020, nearly 15% of areas are going to have a boost of more than 7.5%. Now, on the other hand, more than a fourth of areas for which we have enough data to estimate for 2021 more than a fourth of areas are going to see a decrease in income limits. And 16% of those areas are going to have a decrease of more than 2.5%. Now, it's obviously important for any affordable housing owner, investor, lender to know the specific income limit for a specific property and how it's likely to change over the next two years. Now, the estimates 
that we provide really should be part of every underwriting model and every forecast performed by investors, lenders, and developers, or for investors, lenders, and developers. Our rent and income limit estimator can provide estimates for most areas for 2020 and 2021. Now, I will include a link to Thomas's blog post and to the rent and income limit estimator page in today's show notes. I'll tweet it out as well. And if you're interested in purchasing rent and income limit estimates for a particular property or properties, please reach out to my partner, Thomas Stagg. Now, in news from HUD, we have information on a factor used for determining rent increases for some properties. More specifically, last week, the department released its operating cost adjustment factors for 2020, or OCAFs, O-C-A-F. OCAFs apply to project-based Section 8 contracts, and the 2020 OCAFs apply to such properties or such contracts with an anniversary date of February 11th, 2020 or later. Now, the factors are used to determine rent increase adjustments for Section 8 properties, and OCAFs vary by state. Now, the national average is 2.2%. Of the 54 locations with OCAFs, including the District of Columbia, Puerto Rico, the U.S. Virgin Islands, and the Pacific Islands, 47 of the 54 locations have an increase of between 2 and 2.9%. The highest increases were Hawaii and the Pacific Islands at 3.5%. And the lowest increases in OCAFs were Missouri and Oklahoma at 1.8%. Now, if you have any questions about the OCAFs, please contact my partner, Rich Larson, in our Tom's River, New Jersey office. Now, let's turn to Community Reinvestment Act news. Comptroller of the Currency, Joseph Otting, told reporters last Tuesday that the Federal Reserve would not join the other two banking regulators in their proposals to modernize the Community Reinvestment Act. Now, Comptroller Otting said that the main disagreement was how to measure CRA investment. Comptroller Otting did say he was optimistic that his agency, the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, and the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, the two other banking regulators, could unveil a joint proposal in December, a joint proposal that could be finalized next May. I should note, the FDIC board is meeting on December 12th, where one of the agenda items could be to approve joining the OCC on a notice of proposed rulemaking to rewrite the CRA regulations. And by the way, while we're speaking of the CRA, you can read an interview with Barry Whitus of the OCC in the December issue of the Novogratz Journal of Tax Credits. This interview covers how Opportunity Zones investments are considered and evaluated under CRA and Public Welfare Investment Authority guidance. And speaking of Opportunity Zones, the Federal Housing Administration will offer an incentive for home buyers who rehabilitate homes that are located in opportunity zones. Starting on December 16th, home buyers can finance up to $50,000 of rehabilitation costs in their FHA mortgage for purchased homes in an opportunity zone. That $50,000 is a significant increase over the maximum $35,000 that can be financed for homes not in an opportunity zone. Also, the U.S. Small Business Administration, or SBA, well, they last Monday made an announcement that could give businesses in certain opportunity zones an advantage when competing for federal contracts. The SBA published a direct final rule that would allow governors to petition the designation of hub zones 
hub zone status to certain covered areas. SBA anticipates that many of the covered areas will be opportunity zones. Now the hub zone program gives eligible businesses a preference in full and open federal contract competition and allows them to compete for set-aside contracts. Now the final rule goes into effect January 1, 2020. That is, unless significant adverse comments are submitted by December 16th. And I would certainly be remiss if I didn't emphasize that the Economic Innovation Group, or EIG, has launched an interactive Opportunity Zones activity map. The map has information on Opportunity Zones investments, Opportunity Funds, and state and local initiatives that adapt Opportunity Zones to local priorities. Data accessed with the map can be filtered by activity type and geography. Also, you can send EIG suggested updates to the map by email. I will include a link to the map as well as the email to send suggestions to in today's show notes, and I'll tweet out the link as well. Now let's turn for Opportunity Zones to public housing news. Democratic Representative Ilan Omar of Minnesota last week introduced a bill that would authorize construction of $12 million in new public housing and permanently affordable private rental units. Under the bill, over the next 10 years, $800 billion would go towards new public housing construction and $200 billion would go towards the Housing Trust Fund, a combined $1 trillion. Like the companion bills on the Green New Deal for public housing, introduced by Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont and Representative Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez of New York, Omar's bill would repeal the Faircloth Amendment to allow the construction of new public housing. Now, the bill is called the Homes for All Act of 2019. Oh, by the way, House Financial Services Committee Chairwoman Maxine Waters introduced her housing and infrastructure bill that I described in last week's podcast. I'll include a link to the bill's text in today's show notes and a link to last week's podcast summary of the bill. And in state-level news, the Wisconsin Housing and Government Development Authority has issued modifications to its quality allocation plan for 2019 and 2020. The allocation plan now includes the average income option for the rural set-aside for 9% low-income housing tax credits. These changes will allow properties that already received an award under the 2019 rural set-aside to retroactively amend their application to include the average income option if they meet a series of qualifications. One of those qualifications is 100% of the units must be low-income rent-restricted. Now, applicants for the 2020 rural set-aside will have the same option as well. I'll include a link to the summary of the changes in today's show notes. Well, that brings you to the end of this week's report. But I do want to note, copies of the updated 2019 edition of the Novak New Markets Tax Credit Handbook are available to ship this week. There is a new section on the interaction of the New Markets Tax Credit and Opportunity Zones. There are also updated sections on allocation agreements, using the CDFI funds, awards management information system, or AMIS, and more. There's a link to the purchase to purchase the book in today's show notes, and I'll tweet it out as well. That's it for now. I'm Michael Novogratik. Thanks for listening. This weekly podcast has been brought to you by Novogratik & Company, LLP. 
archived podcasts are available online at www.novaco.com forward slash podcast or by subscribing to the Tax Credit Tuesday podcast in iTunes. You can find related links referenced in this podcast in our show notes at www.novaco.com forward slash podcast. Novograd and Company LLP is a national certified public accounting and consulting firm with offices nationwide. Learn more about our professional services at www.novaco.com.